0: Well hello everyone, I'd like to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open it with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll really be focusing on verses 3 through 7 this morning and you can just leave your copy of scripture uh, or your device open to this passage because we're going to be working back in and through every which way to try to extract out as much as we can, as well as uh, plumbing the depths of the rest of Scripture. And uh, and so it'll be helpful to you to have that open. Would you read together with me? Let's go ahead and start, I'm going to go on the fly here, with verse 1. And then we'll read through verse 7. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and so please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, then no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." We are in a series right now on Christian maturity. What does God want us to be when we grow? What does God want us to be increasingly becoming? What is that vision that God has? Well, whatever stage or level of your relationship with God right now, our passage today makes God's desire for you, for me, for all of us, crystal clear. This is the will of God Your sanctification. Verse 7, I think, accurately summarizes that principle. God has not called us for what? God has not called us for what, verse 7? Impurity. But in what? Holiness. Something God wants for his children is for them to look more and more like him. More and more holy. In my sermon today, I'm going to have essentially two foundational truths that drives one applicational truth. There will be lots of supporting evidence for all of that. But the first and primary foundational truth for us today is this. That God has called us for holiness. God has called his church, his people to holiness. God has called us. For holiness. That's one key foundational truth for us today. Now as we're right out of the gates. Looking at this text. And focusing on this truth. I'm just going to guess. That if any of you are anything like me. That right out of the gates. Some of us are stopping and thinking. It's already game over. Like I have played this game before. They. Demolish me every time. My life experience tells me time and time and time again that if God has called me for holiness. I am at the bottom of the division. I ain't ever going to win this thing. I can't do it. And I want to just suggest to you today, gently, that you're wrong. And I want to use that maybe sports analogy illustration and, and to milk it a little further. Just this week, Pastor Scott and I were talking about the Hobart High School soccer team. They did pretty well this year. They, they made it pretty far in the, in the division. I think that's due in part because two of their coaches attend our campus, I'd like to think. We had an awful lot to do with that. It's not because of my uh, conditioning, I'll just say it that much. <laughs> um, so well done, Hobart High School men's soccer. And We were talking this week about coaching. And the role coaching plays, because coaches have a vital role. And in soccer, you've got mid-game adjustments, and there's shouting instructions. And then there's this pivotal moment called halftime, where you gather all the guys in. And when you're little, you get orange slices, which is a highlight, right? <laughs> but when they're older, they just smell bad, and you get Gatorade. And the coach pulls them in tight. And typically, if they're a good coach, go over what's happened. Hey, they keep using this formation. They've adjusted and they're pounding down this side of the field. They're going to this guy every time. Have you noticed that, trend? And then they make real-time adjustments. We're going to stop getting beat by that. We're going to adjust to take advantage so that we can perform better in the second half. This is what's been happening. We don't have to let it happen anymore. And I want to say to us today that just as we've sung and seen already this morning, the first half of our time together, that grace makes halftime adjustments permanently possible for us. We get the opportunity by grace at every turn and in every moment to say, it doesn't have to happen like that anymore. I don't have to take another step in it. I don't have to keep getting beat here. God has made a way for me to be new. Since that's true consistently for us, I want to say to us this morning as we look at God's call to holiness in our lives, that this can be our halftime moment right now as well. This can be your halftime moment as well. Just because life to this half or this quarter or this three quarters has not gone your way and has not proved to you that you are going to be able to live for the call of holiness in your life, grace makes it possible to now play different. Live different, experience difference. This is our locker room moment. As obedient children, Peter would say, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, be holy like I am holy. This is our call. So, what does it mean to be holy? holy. What's it mean to be holy? It means be set apart, dedicated to God, and like God in his perfection. A person set apart and dedicated to God lives consistent with the character of God by his standards. And our passage in Thessalonians says that sanctification is the banner under which God's will for our life lives. And sanctification is that Proper way, maybe the grammatically correct way to say, holification. English doesn't let us say holification because we think it's a weird-sounding word. So we created a new word that wasn't there in the Greek, sanctification, and it means the same thing. Holy is the state. Holification is, is the process of becoming that state. So, sanctification is the process of being holified. If that clarifies things at all. God's will for a Christian is sanctification, holification. So let's talk about it. Verse 7 says this. God has not called us for impurity, sin, but in holiness. He's called us in holiness. And, and that reveals something that the rest of Scripture tells us as well. And that's this. Holiness starts as God's work, not ours. Holiness starts as God's work. He called us. He called us. And in calling us to himself, he makes us holy before him. He's called us in holiness. You know, theologians like to describe sanctification in three ways. There's progressive sanctification, it's the ways we're becoming increasingly more and more and more like God in His holiness. There's perfect sanctification, the reality that one day we will be ultimately what we were meant to be, like God in righteousness with Him forever, perfect sanctification. But there's another reality, and that's positional sanctification, the way God decisively Forever forgives and justifies and makes right each and every Christian by the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Positional sanctification. Made right forever before God already. Even though we're not yet acting like it. Even though we're not yet in it forever with him. That's what this passage is revealing to us here. That's what we're seeing. Though we aren't experiencing perfect holiness yet in life, Talk to the people who know you in life if you're confused about that matter yourself, right? Though we're not yet experiencing perfect holiness yet, and though we will one day know it, still yet God interacts with the Christian already through the lens of the holiness that Jesus has given us already. That's how God views and sees and interacts with his children Because holiness was begun as God's work, we now have work ourselves to do towards holiness. Holiness continues as God's work in our work. Holiness continues as God's work in our work. Because we've been made positionally holy already, and we've been given an affection for the things of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. We are called to be increasingly holified, mature Christian is someone who is increasingly holy, increasingly more and more like the character God has already given us in Jesus. And I'll admit, that vision for maturity is not the picture that churches today tend to promote for Christianity. And maybe we're guilty of it as well. And the way we talk and the things we post and the pictures we use on our websites. We tend to want to promote Mature Christianity as being a joyful Christian, happy and cool, dressed well. We tend to want to promote Christianity, a mature Christianity, as a fulfilled Christian, someone who's found their purpose and living out their meaning in life. We tend to want to promote a connected Christian who's surrounded by attractive and engaging friends. That's a mature Christian if we pay attention to that. Advertisements or social media presence of most of modern churches. And yet, the central to the will of God for his children, though those things are all good, is that his children are maturing in holiness. But that's not an impossible task. It's not a situation where we have to fake it till we make it. A Christian's life is instead one of integrity. A life of holiness in a Christian is one of integrity because sanctification is becoming more now who we already are in him. Sanctification is becoming more now who we already are in him. It's acting with integrity. It's living with integrity. Sanctification for a Christian then is more like going home than discovering a brand new world more like coming home than discovering a brand new world now granted it's a home we've never lived in yet we haven't been perfect and holy yet but nonetheless it's who we are in Jesus so as we live a holy life it's more about coming home than going somewhere we've never been before and it's not our effort alone that gets us there no holiness continues as God's work in our work God works, we also work. Or or maybe more, more accurately, because God works, we get to work towards our holiness. Time is fleeting, so I'll just say then, and it takes work. Because our second foundational truth is this. We've got this problem of sinfulness. Yes, God has called us for holiness. Principle one. But principle two, we've got this problem, see, called sinfulness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul famously says in Romans 3. Falls short, don't measure up, are not holy like God's glory is holy. In fact, we preferred anything else than God's glory. Paul says it. About humanity that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other lesser things, didn't we? So the essence of sin is this. We've looked at the glory of God and we've hated it. And we've instead preferred anything else to his holiness. We've looked at the beauty and greatness and glory of God and we've said, I prefer myself. My own ways, my own desires, I prefer this style of living, I I prefer sex or pleasure or food, or I prefer other people's affirmation, I prefer anything else than God. Sometimes that means I do wrong things. Sometimes that means I do evil things. Sometimes that means I do fine and dandy things at the cost of loving God even more. We've exchanged enjoying and worshiping and being in the glory of God for something else. That's sin. And and maybe for our purposes this morning, I've constructed what is perhaps the worst grammatical sentence in the English language. In a way that I hope helps us understand better the reality of sin in the life of a believer. And that's this. Sin is preferring anything to God's glory. And sin rules humanity and will be punished. But the gospel frees us from sin's condemnation and power, though we still battle with the presence and impact of sin. Can we agree? That is a run-on sentence. (laughs) However, I I think it's the best of my ability this week to, to try to package, in the time we have... What many have spent far more pages in time than we have to deal with today. And, and we've just touched on the first half of that. Sin is performing, preferring anything to God's glory. And I'd like to walk quickly through the rest of this phrase. Because sin rules humanity. What does First Thessalonians 4 say? What's our passage? Say controls people who don't know God. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Christian. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Because see, our passions, our our lust, our desires rule our lives. Sin rules our life apart from God rescuing us. And listen, we are grown adults in America there is nothing that makes us angrier than someone suggesting that anybody other than us is in charge of us, right? We will work our own job, being our own boss, never getting a day off till the day we die in order to avoid having to be answering to anyone else. We will fight off foreign nations in order to be able to be our own country, right? We've proved that a 100 times over. You may want to disagree with me. Like, listen... I know I've done things that are wrong. I've messed up, but those are slip-ups. Those don't control me. I control me. I just made a mistake. I'm the master of my own fate, though. I have agency. I can make of my life what I want to make of my life. And if you're more honest, you might admit, and I'm exhausted trying to do it. And I feel terrified. That I'm not enough. And that sounds horrible, though compelling, except for that Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's not just the man, the man, or the corrupt system. Or some intersecting oppression that's behind the problems we ultimately face in life. The real problem is sin. And sin rules humanity and our experience of bondage to it. But don't worry. It gets worse. Because sin will be punished. Because while sin rules us, it does not rule everything. There is a God over it. And our passage makes this clear. Verse 6, don't be controlled by sin. It's saying that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. And all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, Paul's saying, Paul say, in love, I'm warning you, I this is serious, listen to me. God is an avenger. Sin, everywhere, every time, in God's time, will be answered to and his wrath and justice. And in a week filled with horrible news from the other side of the globe, or in a lifetime where you may have experienced horrible injustice and harm, this is good news. It is good and right that our holy God will avenge and bring justice to every evil. What a mercy in the face of injustice. Of course, the one problem with all of this is that we are on the wrong side of the equation. When justice prevails and God makes all things right, we're the problem he's making right. But, this horrible structured sentence says, the gospel frees us from sin's condemnation and power. Paul would say, in Colossians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has delivered and redeemed and forgiven. Because Jesus died in our place and for our sin. When we repent and believe in him, we are freed. Freed from sin's power. We're forgiven. Forgiven sin's punishment and transferred out of sin's control. God stays being the just and justifier. He just does this through Jesus receiving the punishment that we deserved. And then instead giving us the holiness and position and power over sin. That we never otherwise would have known. And that was his. And that was a gift of grace and love to us. Even though we're no longer ruled by sin and under sin judgment. Then if you are believer by faith. We still battle with the presence and impact of sin. Don't we? Your life probably persuades you of this. Just like Paul's life persuaded him. I know nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh," he says in Romans seven, right? I have this desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do is what I keep doing. If then I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Now on this, on this side of eternity, we will always face the reality that sin and temptation. Are there, But, by God's grace and power, we get to our third and applicational truth today. Yes, God's called us to holiness. And yes, we have this problem of simpleness. But, by God's grace and power, we can kill sin and grow in holiness. We can. You can kill sin and grow in holiness in Jesus. And we see this clearly in our text. Look at verse 3. This is the will of God, your holification, right, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. How? In holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Holy, alive before God, we can kill and quit sin. We can... Act in holiness. God's will is that we abstain from sin. Don't sin. Aren't controlled by our sinful desires. And here Paul really is exclusively focusing on sexual sin. But this principle is true universally. It would be good for us maybe to sit where he focused. But for the sake of our message today, I'm going to sit more broadly. He calls us instead... To control our body and thoughts and desires towards honorable living. See, there are two realities. Two realities in a mature Christian that God makes possible. He gives Christians the ability to make war and to grow. To make war, we're soldiers, and and, and to grow. We're we're gardeners. We're, We're both of those things. First, he makes it possible for us to make war, to engage in warfare, to put off sin, to kill sin, to abstain from sin. He would say in other letters, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Put them all away, Colossians 3. In the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live, in Romans 8. The theological term for this is mortification. Can you say mortification? Mortification. Mortification. We have this old self, it used to define us. We didn't know there could be another way. We were slaves to that sin, but God, but God has liberated his children from their sin. And now we have what we need to fight sin like it's a life or death matter, because it is. We can and must fight sin. We are warriors in Christ. We're also gardeners. In Christ. We aren't merely killing sin. We have something incredible to do in its stead. We have life. We have growth and holiness. We're doing the good things God has planned for us. We're loving him. We're behaving in an honorable and fruitful manner. Colossians 3, Paul would write, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. The theological term here is vivification. Can you say Vivification. That one's harder. Can we all agree? And I think sometimes it's harder in real life to do. Being made alive by the Spirit, we have this new self that we get to go live out. Some of you have just great lawns. And the rest of us sin against you because of that. We hate you. We can't figure it out. Our, our turf doesn't do nearly what yours does. You've got stripes in your lawn. Man. And to have a great lawn, I understand, though I don't know this experientially, you have to kill weeds and grow grass, right? You have to do both of those things. Now, if you only rolled around the place in your chem suit with a double backpack of Roundup, and you just... Start a gunslinging all over the lawn, killing all the weeds you could, your lawn would be weed free and probably grass free too. But weeds are bad. They must be killed. They'll take over the lawn. But you also have to plant and nourish the grass. Plant the seeds and water them and Give them the nutrients they need to grow and aerate the lawn. Give them space and put them in communities so that they can pollinate each other and grow. I don't know if grass pollinates each other. Take that illustration with (laughs) a grain of salt. Somebody afterwards can be like, I don't think you were right on that one. (laughs) In the spectrum of spiritual maturity, we are in warfare and we are in production. We mortify and we vivify We kill lust, perhaps, but then we also show love. We exterminate gossip, perhaps, but then we exemplify encouragement. We say no to sin, and we say yes to righteousness. I mean, it isn't enough. Let's case study this. It isn't enough for me to just know in my heart, I can't gossip. So I'm going to kill that, and I'm going to protect that, and I'm not going to talk to anyone ever. So that I don't gossip. No, I I also have to put on, like, I'm going to speak love to you. I'm going to speak encouragement to you. I'm going to tell you about the bad things that are true about you and God. I'm going to tell you about the good things that are true about you and God. If we only do good works of the Spirit, but don't kill sin. One, we may not be of the Spirit in the first place. And second, we're no good. But if we only kill sin, but we don't put on the works of the Spirit, we're no use. Sanctification involves both putting sin to death and living an empowered, obedient life. That's a mature Christian. We can kill sin and grow in holiness. That's what God wants us to be when we grow up. That's who we ought to look up to and The Christian life around this church community that's who we ought to strive to be in the season to come and the years ahead and praise God he's provided no shortage of starting points to help us so uh, let's close with a list of six things that we will not spend a ton of time on don't worry six ways that we might fight sin and grow in holiness this is not an exhaustive list The first thing that came to my heart this week as I was thinking about how do we fight sin, how has God equipped his church to grow in holiness was this. And I think it was this because it's something I have not done consistently or well enough in my life. And that is we need to practice dependence. Practice dependence. What we do well to practice, we will do well later When we need it, right? It's true about playing piano. It's true about cooking food. Just be careful who you're practicing on, right? Make that circle close. Make sure they already like you. Um, And then how we practice depending on God and saying no to sin. And fasting maybe is the specific best example of how we can practice Dependence. Fasting. That can involve food but doesn't need to involve food alone. There are lots of ways to effectively, spiritually fast. Fasting trains believers to deny themselves the normal comforts of eating or some other satisfaction. So that they might seek God more intensely. Humble themselves. Train themselves. And prepare for seasons of temptation. Fasting Trains us to resist natural urges. So that when we face sin, we've already grown the muscle of saying, no, no. I I may have used this example in in the past. Forgive me if I have, but there was a professor and a coach at the college I went to who is famous for making sure his team uh, lived by strict discipline as a way of training them for a life following Jesus. And that was true in his basketball practices, no doubt. I was terrified I wasn't going out for the team. But it was also true the way they sat in the front row in class. He had to be sitting up straight and paying attention. And his team was required to use the sidewalks at all times. Which seems silly when you're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 21-year-old kid. Like, there's a quad. You just walk across it. That's the fastest way from point A to point B. And let's face it, you slept in longer than you should have. You've already missed the opening of the lecture. You're afraid you'll miss the attendance list, so you're cutting across the quad. But not if you are on Coach Chow's basketball team. As he would say it, and we could hear him yelling this at his team, you take shortcuts in life and on the quad, you'll take shortcuts in your marriage. It's like, okay. <laughs> and maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's An example of a reality that when we train ourselves to do the hard thing and the right thing and be dependent on God when we're in a season of preparedness, it'll help us to do the right thing when we're in a season of temptation. Jesus gave us an example of fasting and he expected those who were following him to fast and follow his example as well. So speaking of ways Jesus encouraged us to fight sin, We practice dependence and he also told his followers, Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. We get this awesome scene in the garden. Jesus knows his disciples are about to be tempted. He tells three of his closest disciples, this is how you're going to fight this temptation that's coming up. And they don't listen and they don't do it. But he gives them a template that we ought to follow. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And, And let's roll with the first half of that. Watch Be alert is maybe the way I'd say it. The discipline of being watchful is repeated throughout the New Testament. Be watchful. Be on your guard. Be alert. It's essentially situational awareness, right? It's a proactive posture where you're paying attention to yourself and your surroundings and noting what kind of a situation we're in right now. If you're a bodyguard or if you're in some sort of law enforcement agency, you probably have to use this kind of skill set all the time. You're paying attention. What is it that I need to be looking for? How can I minimize a possible catastrophe? Temptation is always lurking, like a roaring lion, we're told, right? Don't be caught unprepared. So I I don't know. Does, Does that temptation keep coming up at girls' night? Maybe girls' night is not a place for a daughter of the king for you, right? Like, I don't know. Does that temptation keep coming up on, on, on the device that you're using? Well, then maybe it'd be better for you to enter the joy of your Father in heaven without a smartphone than it would be to be in sin. Be alert. Pay attention. Don't be a passive victim that sin just come upon you. No, You, you know. We know. We know the track record. Let's be watchful of our sin and of our lives. And then, be constant in prayer. Prayer strengthens our dependence on God and connects us to awareness of God's mercy and power. If you're in a conversation with God about the thing, it's going to be so much easier to do it God's way. For his glory. Be immersed in scripture. Luke 4, Matthew 4, Jesus in his own battles with temptation quotes scripture to every problem he faces. Fight sin with scripture. Maybe what we need to do as well is be quick to confess. It's a tool, it's a sign of mature life that when you sin or when you're convicted of the sin that the spirit brings to your life, you don't hide, you don't go into a cycle of indulging yourself because you already messed up once. No, you confess. You Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, James would say. Believers repent and confess their sins to God and to the scope of anyone else who's affected to others. That they may receive spiritual healing. That they don't have anything between them and their Savior. I don't know if I have time for talking about confession anymore elements to repentance remorse and ownership and uh, being gospel saturating aiming for a change being complete and how you do it let's be people who are quick to confess and then be in love with who God really is this is the last one be in love with who God really is listen it is easy is it not to feel like sin and temptation are omnipresent. It's a quality we typically give to God. They're everywhere. And we sometimes assume that temptation is omnipotent. Can't be beaten. Irresistible. Inevitable. Hope wanes in our life then when we feel powerless against this constant assault. So we give up. And instead, we try to deal with what feels like guilt and shames, eternality. But what if you're wrong? What if we're wrong about sin? What if sin has been defeated and God is the victor? What if it's God who's with us? What if he's more powerful than we've remembered? What if there's something more inevitable than sin's pull? What if you already have a hope That will overcome. We need a right theology of God because by the grace and power of God, we can defeat the sin we face. So often, I think we don't have a sin problem as Christians, we have a God problem. We don't see God for who He is and has been already to us in Jesus. We don't get who he really is. See God clearly, sin isn't nearly as scary or attractive. Love who God really is and you won't love sin anymore. Sin may be alluring, but God is more worthy. Sin may be powerful, but the person it had power over, your old self, he's been crucified with Christ. She's no longer alive. It's now Jesus who now powerfully lives in you. Sin may have brought condemnation, but now there's no longer any condemnation in Jesus, believer. Sin may make you feel like you're God's enemy and make you feel like you ought to hide and you shouldn't come and you shouldn't share and you shouldn't let it be known. But God is not against you because of your sin. He is on your side in Jesus against your sin. So you may already be thinking, I don't know, Ben. I don't think life's ever going to be different. I think defeat is my destiny. And I'd just like to say, you're wrong, and that's a lie. Has God's grace given you life through the finished work of Jesus? Then you've been set apart for God and set apart to be holy. Holy. You are already sanctified, given over to God, given power to do God's will instead of sins, given love for God instead of sin, given a new life instead of death. Your holiness is a position you have in Christ and in Christ, the process you have to live it out. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul would say, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord whose spirit. If our transformation into glory and into glory and into glory is coming from the real God, it won't be stopped. It can't be defeated. And you don't have to act like it. Let's be mature Christians in the good fight with sin, growing, producing holiness and holy living in acts of love because his grace has made us free to be holy, has enabled us to be alive.